Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome back to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Today's guest, Lisa Carmen Wang, knows better than anyone that by thinking and acting like a winner, you eventually become one. For the world champion gymnast turned feminist entrepreneur, success was always the only option. It was this mindset that propelled Lisa to smash through the glass ceiling, break rules, and ultimately make bank. Now she's on a mission to empower other women to do the same by embracing masculine and feminine energy. Lisa reveals how we can become the most powerful and unapologetic versions of ourselves. In today's episode, we discuss finding your North Star, how women should learn to play the game of entrepreneurship, and why us female entrepreneurs must unite to achieve success. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at the Peers Project, so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Lisa. Lisa, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks, Michelle. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work you're doing in business and VC over the last few years, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. I'm excited to dive into it. Awesome. Cool. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a former USA national champion gymnast turned entrepreneur, investor, speaker, executive coach, podcast host myself, and a upcoming author, um, which I'm really excited about because that's been a lifelong dream of mine. Even though in my career over the last decade, I've been in 
all the male dominated spaces, finances, tech, venture capital, etc. I studied literature in college. So I've always loved stories. I've always loved psychology and understanding the emotions that people go through via books and via writing. And so could never be a broke author just from my immigrant background leaving leaving college. And so the opportunity to now actually share all of my hard-earned lessons as a unapologetic businesswoman uh, to help uplift the next generation of powerful female leaders is a true blessing that I'm really grateful for. And um, I've spent, you know, a, a lot of my career just very much focused on this one mission of uplifting women. Out of my first job out of college was at a hedge fund in New York, but that was like very short-lived, uh, only about a year and a half before I said, F this, I, I can go out and make so much bigger impact. I was seeing these guys raising a million dollars for really dumb projects out of Silicon Valley, apps that were adding no additional value to the world. And I thought, what could I do if I had a million dollars? And so when I started my first startup and I tried to raise money in Silicon Valley pre-Me Too, pre-any of this awareness around true gender equality in venture capital, I remember walking into one of my first investor meetings and uh, the investor walked straight over to my 35-year-old white male COO, shook his hand and brushed me off as the assistant. And that was the first time that I really encountered that and realized that for a lot of women, it's not even about some of these big egregious stories we hear in the news. It's about the small paper cuts getting overlooked and undervalued, assumed as inferior without even speaking a word. And those are the things that wear us down over time. And that experience is what drove me to launch my first kind of true startup, which was SheWorks. And SheWorks became a leading community platform of over 20,000 female entrepreneurs squarely focused on closing the funding gap through collaborating and not competing. And through that journey and up through now, I've helped women raise over $50 million in funding, um, coached over 100,000 women on personal and financial confidence, and spoken on over 100 stages on the power of enoughness. And enoughness is a, a podcast that I hosted um, just around this question of when is it ever enough and when am I ever good enough? And it's really helping women tap into those feelings of inadequacy and unraveling where that comes from and helping you feel like you are enough to do what you need to do. So um, that's that's a bit of my journey. And then currently I'm the head of brand at Republic. Um, and my objective there is to turn Republic, which is an investment platform to help people invest in startups and crypto and real estate and video games and all these cool asset classes that are traditionally only available to the ultra wealthy to help spread that message and turn it into an iconic brand that is accessible to people of all races, ages, genders, class, um, because I believe that everyone should be able to have access to building wealth, uh, regardless of where your starting point is. Um, and all of that is wrapped up in my final thing, which is my book that I'm writing now with HarperCollins, which is the Bad Bitch Business Bible to help us all break free of good girl brainwashing, um, all these messages that tell us we have to be polite and pleasing and, and silent in order to be accepted. Um, and I'm now also hosting the Bad Bitch Business Podcast, where you can get advice from yours truly, your Bad Bitch Business Coach, by texting the Bad Bitch Hotline. Oh, 
Lisa, oh my goodness. I just absolutely love it. You know, obviously I'd looked into what you're doing and what you've done, but hearing it back now, it's just so much more powerful. Um, I can't wait to dive deeper into your book, into the work you're currently doing now at Republic, into how you built SheWalks. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? My parents immigrated from southern China. They grew up during the Cultural Revolution under Mao and, you know, really didn't have the opportunity to um, uh, to pursue their creative passions as people just didn't at that time in China. And they were... Um, lucky enough and through my dad's hard work able to immigrate to America and uh, I was born in Madison, Wisconsin as one of the few Asians in the entire city if not the entire state. Grew up in a way where we definitely didn't have much money. Um, One of my dad's first jobs was delivering uh, yellow books like the phone books back in the day before cell phones and at the same time getting his PhD in nuclear physics at the University of Wisconsin, trying to learn English while doing all this other stuff and raising a daughter. So um, I definitely think that I spent 18 years in the Midwest, uh, definitely feeling like I didn't belong. Um, But where I did find significance was in gymnastics. And I discovered gymnastics when I was nine years old. And it was um, actually one of the, it's a funny story how I ended up in gymnastics because I, in third grade, we had something called Fine Arts Day. And Fine Arts Day is a day where you you do only arts classes and creative classes. And there were all these like activities that you could try out. Um, But at that time, I was also an avid Beanie Baby collector <laughs> when McDonald's was creating mini Beanie Babies. And there were two classes I was torn between because there were limited spots in each. And one was the Beanie Baby making class and the other was the rhythmic gymnastics class. And I knew, in particular, my last name starts with a W. So I always went last because it always went alphabetical order uh, in terms of A to Z in your last name. And so I was like, if I go last, I'm not going to get any of my top two choices. And so for some reason on that day, I decided to go up to the teacher and I said, I think it's not fair that the second half of the alphabet always has to go after the first half of the alphabet. Can we change it? And she was like, well, I can't make that decision. But if you can get people to rally on your side, we can put it up for a vote. And so I think that was my first like real act of, um, of a protest for equality where I remember standing up and saying like, it's just not fair that the second half of the alphabet always has to go after the first half of the alphabet. And obviously I was also driven by my desire to choose my favorite classes. And so when we finally did put it up for a vote, we ended up winning by one M (laughs) and I took that rhythmic gymnastics class and fell in love with the sport and that defined the next decade of my life where I really, um, I found my thing that I could dedicate myself to. And I think I've always been very focused and very hardworking and that might be innate, that might come from my parents. I'm not sure where, but um, I found that 
because I was never very extroverted, um, in fact, I was extremely shy, the ability to perform with my body and to express with my body and get recognition then without using my voice um, was something I think that really brought me a sense of power and um, that I, that I didn't have in other social situations. And of course, like being good at it and getting rewarded for it and winning gold medals that gave me approval and validation. So I would say that gymnastics is a core part of who I am today, like all the discipline, the perseverance. And I say the number one thing looking back that I learned through training as an elite athlete was the ability to fall over and over and over again and to fall very publicly and to feel the, that extreme shame and humiliation and to still get up and do it again because you just, you have to, if you want to succeed, that has really taught me as a entrepreneur, as an investor, and just as a human being, because I think all life is just a journey where you just, you keep falling and you just have to decide if you get up again or you stay down. When was the time that you fell the hardest and you really struggled to pick yourself back up? My dream was always to go to the 2008 Olympic Games. So I, that was a decade long dream. And since I was nine years old and 2008 would be kind of my peak as a gymnast. So you kind of peak at like 18 and at that point after you're kind of old. <laughs> so, which seems ludicrous as I think back to it now, but you know, it's, that's how the sport is. And that would have been so cool to represent the U.S. team going back to my family's homeland in China and I was national champion at that point and was one of the top contenders to go to the games. And I ended up um, missing the qualification for it by 0.25 tenths of a point, which is literally one finger, one toe. And I think there's a lot of stories of people who obviously make it. And then there's the stories of people who just, who don't and that that's fine. But when you're so close and it's just a hair that's, I think, the hardest thing to overcome. And I think it's really hard to explain what it feels like when you've been dreaming about something for 10 years and then just one moment you can't, like it's suddenly gone. And so what do you do? And I think for me, that was really a a shattering of identity moment where it's like, well, I've defined myself as a gymnast for all of my adolescence. And what do I do now? Who am I? And I think that's where this feeling of not enoughness, which was throughout my life, but especially then it's like, oh, I'm actually not good enough, like for the world, for this game, for um, like, I, like, who am I? And I didn't try hard enough. I didn't work hard enough. So I was just really hard on myself. And I think that was probably that event that caused me to redefine myself or, or to cement exactly who I was because I remember the inner dialogue going through me a few weeks later when I had to decide was I going to retire from the sport just end it right there or did I have another choice and so I I realized that my identity has always been and continues to be that of a winner I believe I am a winner and so winners do not quit when they're down and so that was for me like 
is this the way that I want to end my career and this chapter of my life? And I couldn't do that. And so what I ended up doing instead was I was like, I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to spend another year in this sport to become the best possible gymnast I could possibly be. So I bought a one-way ticket to Russia, which is where the Russian Olympic Training Center is. It's the most rigorous training center in the world. Uh, if you think of like Siberia in the middle of winter and it's gymnasts and hockey players and just no distractions. Um, and I spent nine months training there. It was nine hours a day um, and just like every morning a very scant breakfast of like bread and borscht soup and they'd weigh you in the morning you'd train for five hours they'd weigh you again you train for another five hours and I spent nine months training traveling competing across Europe and finally finished my final competition which was the USA Gymnastics National Championships in 2008 right before um, I retired and at that competition I swept every single gold medal I won athlete of the year and I was like, peace, now I'm done. This is like a winner leaves on their own terms on the highest note possible given whatever circumstances are thrown at them. Um, and I think I proved to everyone that, you know, I should have been there. And I think a few years later, it, I was able to, I think, I felt gratified in, in that the USA Gymnastics Federation inducted me into the Hall of Fame for the contributions I made to the sport. So it wasn't the Olympics, um, and it still took me many, many years to get over that. But I think now it's – I look back, and someone said something to me that really resonated that I think finally helped me uh, get past this, and they said – you know, it's such a blessing that you failed so publicly at such a young age because you were forced to deal with those parts of yourself that so many people, whether they're super successful or they've never been successful, they don't have to grapple with that. But you chose to dive headfirst into becoming more self-aware and understanding what the the demons or just traumas inside of you and look at who you are now. Look at how you've translated that into such strength and such power today. So um, I am, you know, I, I firmly say I'm an Olympic level gymnast. Um, I was, and but what's even great now is there's so many other things that I am and, and, and I'm really thankful for that. Oh my goodness. I'm just absolutely loving this. You guys can't see me, but I'm, I've been nodding my head throughout this whole thing. I just, you blow me away, Lisa. And I think your ability to just get real with us and just talk about the fact that, you know, I can't even imagine what that moment would have been like for you. you just, you know, missed it by a hair or whatever it is. But I think, as you mentioned, the fact that you were able to just do it on your terms and actually come back on your terms and achieve what you achieved that year after, it's, it's just incredible. And I think someone that's not been in gymnastics or, you know, not been an athlete, but through the journey of entrepreneurship, been through some really tough falls, 
you know, I think I just deeply resonate with what you're saying. So I think the question I've got there is, you know, for our peers out there listening who perhaps, you know, they feel like they've just missed out on their dream job or their dream deal or, you know, their dream move because of COVID, you know, what advice would you give to them, especially when we feel like we really can't get back up? You know, I think for you, you found this strength within you to somehow keep going, but that's tough. You know, what advice would you have for us? Yeah. I mean, I think it still goes back to just what's your identity? What's your self-perception? And every morning when I wake up, I tell myself I'm a winner Every time I go into a new project, I go in with the mentality that I'm going to succeed. Every time I face failure or rejection, I am thankful for the lessons that I learned so that I can be even better next time. And that's a muscle. It really is. It's There's no trick to motivating yourself. There's no magic formula to succeeding. Um, I think it, it really does take this belief in yourself that you can get back up again, um, that if you do get back up again, that things will eventually work out if you keep believing in yourself. And it's taken me a long time to get there in terms of like confidence too. I think self-confidence is difficult, but you are your number one fan like you have to become your own number one cheerleader your best friend like now when i post stuff on social media i like my stuff first i am my first <laughs> like yes and i'm like i don't care what you guys think about me liking my own thing but i like my stuff so i'm gonna like it <laughs> love it i love it sometimes i comment on our peers project one and i'm like i posted that but i'm commenting and liking <laughs> it's all it's fine you know yeah <laughs> Yeah. I absolutely love it. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story, you know. So you've you've you're in the Hall of Fame. It's all happened for you. You you've come to terms with the fact that your, you know, your gymnastics career has now ended. I think that's when you went off to study at Yale. Incredible. And that's when you did your literature, as you mentioned. And I also love the fact I think I you did like a little stint in China or a year in China at Tsinghua University. Talk to us a little bit about that identity shift again. You know, what were your college days like for you? And I guess, what did they teach you about yourself and the world around you? Yeah, it was definitely a invigorating but difficult experience. I think uh, something that athletes never talk about is how difficult it is to become or figure out who you are after you have pinned your identity to being an athlete for so long. And it really does overtake your life because you're always training and competing and traveling. And so to suddenly not have that and to have nine hours back in your day, uh, physically, much less mentally, you know, 24 hours back in your day and to not have to be on a strict diet, to not really have to care about if you're tired the next day and can perform or can't perform. It's like you got your body and your time and your space back and no one's watching over your shoulder. And in my case, like no one's weighing you to see like if you ate too much the day before and like suddenly you just can do whatever you want. And it's this 
kind of scary feeling. You're like, is this what being normal is like? And and then you get thrown into college at the same time where you have to go through what every freshman goes through, which is making new friends and acclimating to college life and drinking. So I never drank before um, and partying boys like all of that was very new to me. And so um, just being thrown in, it was exhilarating. But then I think what happened after the first semester where all the excitement wore off and suddenly I was like, wait, what's the point? Like, yeah, this was fun, but what's like, I need a goal. Like I need a passion. I need to feel that fire that I felt as a gymnast. And I don't feel that through partying or just socializing. Um, So that was really where I think the soul searching started again college is like what's this next thing and I think I went through seven eight different majors just bopping around and um like yeah at the end day it was just like I I've always been interested in people and psychology and and I think reading is a great way to do that to understand especially when you're shy so I've always found a lot of best friends in in characters and I think you really learn a lot when you get into characters' heads and you see the way they overcome challenges and they interact with other characters going through very like difficult social interactions or just challenges in their lives. Um, but yeah, I didn't I I don't think I found my thing in college. Like I I joined the hip hop dance team, which was great. And I actually had my first entrepreneurial experience there. So I started something called the Yale Event Management Association, which was hosting events for local businesses to help them uh, market to the student body. And um, yeah, so that was called Yemma and built out my first kind of like team of people. We had a secretary and a press person and I don't know, we didn't call it COOs back then. It was like president and vice president and treasurer. Yeah. So um, yeah, so that was definitely tough. And I think that even going out into, um, I, I did t- do a fellowship in China to learn Mandarin. Um, and that was fun. It was tough. And then I ended up in finance, even though I really didn't want to be in finance because I just I got an internship and turned into full time. But what I've always been searching for is that fire again, like a purpose, a North Star. And I didn't find that until I started SheWorks and I think what was very different about the North Star, which is still mine now, just all around women, because I think like the world needs to be run by three things, collaboration, empathy, and powerful women. It would just be so much better of a world if powerful women were in charge. And the thing with women who understand, acknowledge, and embrace their power is that we're not zero sum. You know, we're not competitive with each other in terms of cutting each other down. Like women naturally want to collaborate when they're feeling abundant and loved and they want to give love. It's just that the patriarchy has made us feel scarce and like we can't trust people. Um, and so, so yeah, I think the the real thing that changed me was as a gymnast, I often joke, I grew up in the Mean Girls movie and it was hard because it was a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. There's only one gold medal. And so I had a really toxic relationship to other women, just like my concept of female friendship. And so I didn't make my first like real, real female friend where 
I felt like she was genuinely happy when I was successful and like there was no underlying envy or resentment uh, when I was in my mid twenties and right out of college and she's still my best friend today. Um, and she just like changed my life. I was like, wow, this is what friendship is supposed to be. And this is so amazing when you have a woman supporting you and, she works as tagline, which was closing the funding gap by collaborating, not competing. It's why I do what I do today. And because I personally felt how starved I was without true female friendship. And I think that that's probably the most detrimental thing for women. It's not like not having a man or like not having you know someone to date, which is like the narrative that we've been fed forever since like, and then Disney movies have reinforced, but it's the most detrimental thing for women is if we don't have other women, like a community of women, like in our lives, because you see the woman who doesn't have that. And she is, she becomes like bitter and, and resentful and just like shriveled because like when we're starved of feminine love, I think that's just, it's so unfortunate. And so, um, I feel like I've gone on a total tangent, but like that is my North Star now. And that's what I was looking for all throughout college. And I finally found it now. And it's um, it's what wakes me up every morning, keeps me going. I think so many of us experience this. You know, this was definitely me as well. It was those college days getting so confused and getting caught up in kind of what I was supposed to be doing and, you know, the path I should be taking or we should be taking, you know, and I also ended up in finance, um, quickly moved along from there. But, you know, I think so many of our peers out there listening can relate. And I think the question I've got for you is how do we get comfortable with the gray and not knowing what our North Star is or what our passion is or what we really want to do. You know, that's such a tough place to be in. How can we get comfortable with that? And then even more so than that, how can we then start to find perhaps something that we are passionate about or that drives us? Yeah. The first thing to do is to just start getting curious. And I mean, getting curious about the world and then getting curious about yourself and your own emotions because for me that experience that I had uh, in that investor's office and that small paper cuts and like I remember feeling so frustrated and so diminished and so like at the heart of it angry Um, even though back then I didn't know how to be angry I kind of like suppressed it but I just I felt really bad. And I listened to that feeling. I got curious about how I felt. And I dug more and more into like, where does this come from? And started talking to other women because I was curious about, is this how other women feel too? And um, that is what eventually led me to where I am because then I started building bonds with my community and their difficulties also became mine. And so it was just like this shared experience and that has fueled my passion. And so I think that, you know, a a lot of, I think the most important moves that I've made in my career have come from me being curious and observant about how the outside world affects me. Same thing with finance. I remember feeling 
unhappy and feeling trapped and feeling like I could make so much more of a difference when I read some of these articles online about everyone raising all this money for insignificant apps. And when I took the leap into entrepreneurship and my parents were super against it and they said, well, why? There was no logical reason why, because it was a great job on paper. It Everything about it looked great. And my only answer was like, well, because I'm unhappy. Like, I just, I'm just unhappy and I have no other, other reason besides that. And I was strong enough back then to at least give enough weight to how I felt to say that's enough of a reason for why I want to make this next move. And so it's not even about like knowing exactly what it is you want to pursue right now, but it's listening to your body and seeing where that's going to direct you and then trusting that at some point it will get you there because I mean, it's taken me like 10 years. You know, I left gymnastics when I was 19. Um, So it's just, you know, a decade of trust. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that trust. Sometimes it fails us, but (laughs) no, I I couldn't agree more. I want to talk a bit about SheWalks and how you built that. I think it was over a period of five years and then it got acquired in 2019. You know, I think that's almost the dream for for so many entrepreneurs to have their company acquired. Could you talk to us a little bit about those early days, you know, those challenges where you were just trying to figure it out. And I guess the first few steps that you took to really get it off the ground. Yeah. Well, SheWorks really started as a blog, a Squarespace blog. And that was me wanting to kind of going back to small paper cuts, talking to a lot of women, being like, okay, there's something here and I'm good at writing. So I'm going to kind of put this out there. Um, but I think even back then I realized that I don't like doing things in a vacuum and part of how I figure out what it is I'm thinking is by speaking it and talking to other people and getting that feedback. So I reached out to some female entrepreneurs that I'd met during my journey and I was like, I want to have this round table. Let's, let's talk because there's really no place for us to gather. And what had just happened in New York that, um, I think a, a week ago had been a female entrepreneur had committed suicide in New York and on Facebook, she looked totally fine. And so I think that trigger was like, Hey, maybe it's really important for women entrepreneurs to like actually have a place for us to share these experiences because building companies is hard. Fundraising is really hard. And um, so that first round table happened and it kept going like it was just like we want more we want more and so I think really focused on consistency and quality it was every Wednesday morning and then started bringing in like top VCs inviting top founders people that a new first-time female founder would not normally have access to and I think different than typical events where a founder is pitching an investor it was a real intentional setting of the environment where we said for all the investors this is a space for women. So you're coming into our space. This is our values. And we're here for not for the VC to like find and like pitch or the women to pitch. It's like actually about a true conversation where we want you to add value to the female entrepreneurs in the room and they are giving their time to you. Um, And so I think it was like a switch of power dynamic in a way where usually the entrepreneur is not in power when they're pitching the investor. 
Actually, they are if you use the mindset shift, but most entrepreneurs go in, you know, feeling like I need money and then they give off that energy. So, um, yeah, it just really, really continued to, I think, do what I do best, which is being consistent and just like not skipping a Wednesday, always the same time. And that started to spread. So that brand value and consistency and word of mouth. Um, and then when the Me Too movement hit, we really got a lift from that wave. And we were also early on that conversation. Um, and then we started building summits out and that spread to seven cities. And we had directors out there all curating their SheWorks communities based off of our brand values and community values. And um, I think at a certain point, it got to we've built this incredible community. Um, we've helped women raise a ton of money, but like what's the next stage of that? And so that's when conversations with Republic started where it just became a natural fit because of their funding structure, you know, equity crowdfunding, allowing the community to invest in companies. And it tends to benefit diverse and underrepresented entrepreneurs more because if 94% of investors are men and mostly white, that it's just harder to raise VC funding. And so we thought with Republic, they have the right mission, the right vision and the product that would also empower our community even more. Um, it became a natural fit. And then after a, a decent amount of conversations, um, we saw eye to eye and then that acquisition happened. So, so amazing. And I just think what I love most about your story there is is the consistency piece. You know, I think so many of us start out with our ideas and we get really excited and maybe for the first six to 12 months, we're all in. And then it's like, you know, things aren't really taking off. Can I really be bothered? Or, you know, maybe I've made the wrong move. Was there ever a moment for you where you felt with SheWorks that, how could this possibly turn into a business? Or like, you know, have I made the wrong move? You know, my steady paycheck looks great right now. You know, like, did that ever happen for you? And if so, how did you navigate through that, I guess, uncomfortable time? Yeah, all the time. You do not get paid as an entrepreneur. (laughs) And I was at certain points, I'm like, oh, I could be making so much more money. Um, And you know, God knows what would have happened if I stayed in finance. Maybe I'd be making more money, but I'd probably be a lot less happy. Um, yeah, I mean, the the thing that allowed me to stick to it was because of the community. Like, I cared so much about the mission. I probably cared to a fault. Um, so much so that I was willing to sacrifice myself and my health. And um, I think back then when I didn't have the self-confidence truly, um, I allowed myself to be taken advantage of in terms of like, you know, accepting lower rates and not advocating for my worth. And um, yeah, that definitely hurt me. Um, The only thing that kept me going was that this was my baby. And I got feedback consistently from women that this was really powerful. And I was like, every woman counts. Every woman counts. Um, and so I think it was at a point where I just couldn't let it fail. And, you know, the, the acquisition came at a perfect time as well, because I think I was probably on the edge of burnout. And so, um, to be able to see your baby go into the hands of a good parent 
where you're like, perfect timing. Um, that just felt really great. And then I have pivoted a bit. Like I had a, a moment where after I sold SheWorks, I was like, I felt almost constrained by only focusing on women because I was like, well, men don't only speak to men. Why do women only have to speak to women? And, you know, I think of uh, motivational coaches, like most of them are white men. It's like Tony Robbins, the Tim Ferrisses, the Gary Vaynerchuks, and they speak to everyone. Why is it that women only speak to women? Like, and so I kind of thought about like broadening out and even enoughness. Enoughness affects everyone, um, not just women. So I had this moment of like, maybe I should talk to everyone. And then over this past like year, I came back again and I was like, well, what is it that I really care about? Like, what is it that fires me up or like makes me angry, uh, makes me elated? And I was like, at the end of the day, it's just like it's women. Like it, it's not it's not a bad thing to target. You know, it's like, actually, this is what I care about. It's like my experience through this world is as a human being, but it is first and foremost for me as a woman. I always think about how people's identity is often shaped by the areas in which they've had the most adversity. So there is really funny because I met this man. Uh, he's white, but he's a redhead. And so he he was like, sometimes I identify more as a redhead than even as a man. And I know that sounds weird, but it's because he was bullied as a kid as a redhead. And so he identifies with that adversity in his life and it sticks with him today. So I know, you know, some Asian men uh, who are short and maybe they'll more identify with their height and be like, there's prejudice against short people. And so it's it's always interesting to see like how people identify first um, based off of where they have felt the most hurt by the external world. Um, but that's all to say is that I genuinely believe women need to be in power and money is part of that. So it's like, that's where all this comes together with like, let's talk about women, money and power. And like, I have a clubhouse about that and an event series now where I'm like, that's just all I want to talk about all day. So you can join me here. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And I resonate with that so deeply. And I love the fact that you mentioned about that identity piece. And I think for me, I think it's a woman first, which is what's so interesting. I mean, there's so much, and also my height, that's, and it's crazy because I'm like a, a mixed, you know? So, and especially in a country like Australia or even the US, I can imagine it's always like, oh, wow, you're the only kind of like black woman in the class or like, you know, especially in the circles I grew up in. And it was always, you're the tallest or the woman piece, I think when I was in my early twenties was just massive for me. It's just, it's so interesting that you mentioned that. And I think all of us can reflect on kind of, yeah, where we sit on that. And then I guess perhaps even use that as a way to guide us to where or to, you know, what spaces or, you know, what mission we choose to follow. I think I've never thought of it in that way, but I think that is, yeah, I think that's really powerful. Oh, Lisa, we could talk for days. Oh, I am mindful of your time. So I've got a couple final questions for you as we start to wrap up. And I think the first one is, I know we talked earlier about your gymnastics failure, but what has been your greatest failure to date in the last perhaps year or so? <laughs> the first thing that comes up in my mind is uh, dating the wrong guys. <laughs> 
I don't know why that, that's the first thing that comes up in like my personal it. life. <laughs> love it. Please do share. Um, <laughs> accepting things that are so below my standards, like giving excuses to men because you have rose colored glasses on and diminishing myself. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting because, and I don't think we talk about this enough, but like as a powerful woman professionally, I struggled through my personal life because I noticed I was a very different person because I think this goes to the narrative of the pressure that society puts on women, especially as you get older, to find a man as if like the number one thing that will give you societal approval is a man choosing you and putting a ring on your finger. And so um, I definitely felt that pressure. And so it was like, there's still something missing. Um, yeah. And I just, I found myself in, in relationship after relationship with guys where I ended up diminishing myself. Like I would change myself ever so slightly for him to continue liking me. And when I finally took a step back and I analyzed what I was doing, I was like, what, what is this pattern that keeps happening where I feel less of a version of my true self in these relationships than when I'm single? Like I'm a big version of myself when I'm single, but like what happens in these relationships? And I remember um, crying to my mom and after one of these uh, breakups and I was just like, mom, I'm just so much happier when I'm single. <laughs> And when I'm in a relationship and she finally was like, okay, you know, there's all Lucy Lou had a, had a baby boy without a husband. So maybe you could do that too. And I was like, yes. great. I have a role model, but she was just like, if you don't find someone that you're happy with, I'm fine. I won't pressure you anymore. And so that was just a really great burden off to to get my mom's approval to say like I just want you to be happy and do what makes you happy um so now I'm uh very different I think in my dating life I've deleted all my dating apps I simply don't have time for it and I'm I set very high standards from the beginning I make it very clear that you must earn my trust and my love and I also I'm like I'm not interested in dating I, I state that I'm like, I don't know if I, I'm just not interested. And it's a weird thing that happens with guys is that they are more interested when you're not, but I'm like genuinely not interested. Oh, so, my. but, but the, <laughs> yeah. the guy who ends up breaking that, you know, getting past that, we'll see. Um, anyway, men have been a failure. <laughs> That's you know what? I just think for so many of us, it's, and it, especially as you put it, especially ambitious women, it's like, why should we have to? But naturally, I think we just meld. We, we want to meld to kind of what they want, which I think it's so powerful that you've put that boundary up there. And I think it's something that we can all definitely, I'm reflecting on that now, you know, like something that we can all kind of take on board, asserting our boundaries where required and I can't wait for the guy that breaks that for you because he's gonna be freaking awesome and it's just it's funny too also what's really great is you know like the true self of that guy comes out when you bruise his ego that like that doesn't happen till like a few months in but like he shows his true colors when you give feedback at some point or you're like somewhat negative and he's just like blah reacting and that's that happened to me too and I was like whoa this is the monster that I've been with and so if you put that up front just your true self 
then you see those true colors much sooner and you're like, cut out this toxic energy now. Yes, just cut. cut. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Amazing, Lisa. So, you know, look, over the last several years in business, I think it's coming up on six or seven, or the last 10 years of your life, really, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. Most notably on the, I, I should say, kind of uh, public side of things, most and notably, you've been featured on the Forbes City Under 30 list, Entrepreneur Magazine's 100 Most Powerful Women, Red Bull Hero of the Year, among many, many others. And you've also got a book coming out, which we haven't talked much about, and I want to talk a little bit about it, but coming out in the fall of 2022 called Bad Bitch Business Bible. Such a cool name. What are three key pieces of advice that you'd give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Number one is don't fear the game. What I mean by that is what I learned in business is the way men view business and life is very different than the way women view business and life. And men view things as a game. Like you really watch the way they like, like, yeah, let me just put in some money. Like, yeah, let's invest it. Like, hey, buddy, what you investing in? Like, I'll invest in your company. Okay, cool. Like watch the stats go up, watch the stats go down. And that's how they do business. Um, and I'll focus on business because that is where power and money comes from. Like it's still the the greatest source of what controls our world. Um and politics is a game, right? Dating is a game. Like they, they see all of it as a game. Like, can I catch the, the winning fish um, and like just get the, get the prize? Women, on the other hand, we tend to take things very personally. You know, it's like if someone rejects us or they don't respond to our email, we're like, why don't they like us? And like, will they like us if I use a period here? Like maybe they think I'm too assertive. And we're taking the game as a personal attack against us when it's not. And I think I'm not saying that like we shouldn't ever personalize things because I actually think that it's a superpower for us to tap into our emotions. It's just that to learn that your own opinion of yourself is the most important opinion and literally other people's opinion about you just does not matter. If you go into the game being like, all right, so if I like throw out this like this ball and no one catches that ball that's just because they were a bad catcher not because like I am a bad thrower <laughs> that's how men think <laughs> and um I just need to throw out a bunch of balls because at some at some point like someone's gonna catch it and then that'll be the person that I go do business with it's like I think bringing back part of the game is pleasure and play and like actually enjoying it and I think when we take things personally we we latch onto those negative emotions of fear and frustration and stress and anger um, and we just don't need that and women are the most powerful when we are in touch with our pleasure and just being playful and loving and so don't be afraid of the game and actually embrace the game um, number two is just Never accept the first offer. <laughs> I say this for everything. I say a bad bitch shall never accept the first offer. And that's, it, it mainly comes from negotiations. Yes. It's like, usually if you think about 
whether it's someone's giving you a deal or giving you um, even on a let's call it a date, like the guy offers you like, hey, you want to come to my place and chill? Like it's the first offer is never the best offer that someone can give. And you should always counter the first offer. So even someone's like, hey, do you want to meet? on the Lower East Side in New York. So I'm, I live on the Upper East Side and I'm like, well, that's going to take me like 40 minutes. So that's your first offer. No, like at least can we meet in the middle? <laughs> you know, it's like my time is money too. So let's, let's negotiate this. And so, yeah, never accept the first offer. You can always counter it um, in any sort of situation, any opportunity that's presented to you. And then the third one I would say is in the book, I talk a lot about how, a bad bitch, she'll always support her sisters. And that's just going back to this. It's not a zero sum. Like we are so much more powerful when we learn to leverage each other's strengths. Um, and that at the end of the day, like how can you tell who is the the most powerful woman in the room or the, the baddest bitch in the room? And she's the one who has the most love to give. Because she is so in touch with her own unique strengths, her own unique powers, and no one can take that away from her. And so if you are in touch with that, you can go in celebrating other women because no one's exactly you and no one's exactly her. And if you can find those ways where you can lift each other up, like that's the only way we're going to smash the patriarchy. I love it. Amazing, Lisa. Look... I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for all of your incredible work over the years, you know, for showing us, and particularly us women, women of colour, that we can make our own rules, that we can step out and do what we want and assert our boundaries and just follow what feels best for us. And for that, we really appreciate you. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I just want to give a shout out to you for putting this together and sharing this with your community um, and uplifting all of us as well. I'll give a, a little plug for anyone who wants to reach me. You can text my bad bitch hotline <laughs> at 938-223-2230 and ask me any question you want about career, money, business, or just life. And I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. I absolutely love it, Lisa. And I've got one final question for you, which is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Self-love, I think, was the first thing that came to my mind. I think that you are the most incredible project you get to work on in your life. So it's a privilege to be able to learn and test and refine the best version of yourself. And that is a never ending life journey. So following your passion is you loving yourself and giving yourself the love that you deserve. So that's what you should do. <laughs> Lisa, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, we have had such a blast. We appreciate you. We cannot wait for your book to come out. We're going to have to link them up in the show notes. And everyone text Lisa. <laughs> Amazing. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. 
Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst 